0: and will come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Thank you, Mike. Mike was really nervous about that, but he did a good job, didn't he? Uh, if If you have turned your Bibles, keep them open to John 3. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. I ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for uh, the portions of it that few people talk about. And we thank you for the portions of it that seems like everyone's memorized and and is committed to memory. and, and, And God, we're just grateful for all of it because we know you inspired every last word of it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use this passage, the portions of it that everyone has heard before, and the portions of it that few people talk about. I pray that you use... All of it this morning to draw people to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in a day and age where information is just readily available, right? If you've got a smartphone in your pocket, you have just a world of information at your fingertips. This has really done a disservice to men who like to debate on things. Well, I think this happened, I think this happened, they just pull out a phone and it's over, right? You Google it and you find out. But even even in that age where information is just so readily available, there still exists a lot of really widespread misconceptions where where information is so widely presented and held to be true that everyone believes it, even if it isn't true. And a lot of these, honestly, are both humorous and meaningless. For instance, did you know that the blood inside your body isn't blue? You've probably heard that it's blue until it's oxygenized and then it turns red. It's always red. Okay, It only looks blue because of the way that light interacts with the veins in your skin. Okay, Remember the Vikings, those crazy intense Nordic conquerors with with the long beards and, and helmets with horns on them? Yeah, there's no evidence they ever had helmets with horns on them, ever. Someone wrote an opera about Vikings and horns were added to the helmets of performers and a myth was born. They never actually had horns. Okay, so tomorrow night when the Minnesota Vikings are on Monday Night Football, every time you see their mascot, I just want you to scream, fraud, right? And if you can do this in a group of people with no explanation, that would be even better for me. Text me about it later, okay? But misconceptions like that are are harmless, right? They don't really have an impact in your life. Who cares whether the Vikings had horns or not? But there are other misconceptions that might need a second look. We might need to look at these things again that might cause us to see something in a new light. For instance, you need to know, There's actually zero documented evidence that St. Louis Cardinals fans can be productive, positive members of society. Okay? So I think it's wise for us to kind of take a look anew at that group. Maybe amp up our prayers for them. Incarcerate them. I don't know. Something, right? Um, And then there are misconceptions about the Bible and about God. And again, some of these are pretty harmless. Okay? But, for instance, the book of Genesis never says that Adam and Eve ate an apple. It just says fruit. The book of Jonah never one time mentions a whale. It just says great fish. right? But those aren't that big a deal. But there are misconceptions that aren't harmless. There are these widely held beliefs about God that are dangerous and hurtful and need to be addressed. Common misconceptions about God like this one. That God is looking for and pleased with people who are religious. Well, as long as religion is defined by practicing a set of rituals and observances in order to appease God. As long as religion is what we do in order to earn our way to God, then God remains unimpressed, unmoved, and is not pleased with religion. Many people also believe that God has some sort of divine scale of justice, right? And, and on that scale, he's going to weigh your good against your bad at the end of your time. So your job, you better have more good than bad, Right? And they believe that if you don't appease God, you don't do enough to make him happy, then, then that's when God sends you to hell. That he looks over your life, he weighs the good, he weighs the bad, and he makes determination. Those with enough good he sends to heaven, but those with too much bad, well those he sends to hell. And none of these misconceptions are true. They have been formed and widely accepted by a variety of means. They've been formed by people who have mishandled the Bible, teaching it erroneously. They've been formed by the influence of religions. They've been formed by people who hold their opinions and feelings higher than the word of God. They've been formed as a result of human sin and by the work of our enemy in order to confuse people. I cannot narrow down a specific single place where all these misconceptions are born or formed, but I can tell you where they didn't come from. They didn't come from Jesus. And they didn't come from an accurate reading and interpretation of the Bible. Because Jesus never one time lays out a minimum entrance plan or requirements to get to heaven, right? He never says, make sure you do this at least 100 times, pray this 200 times, serve your neighbor 60 times, go to church at least 300 times over a 10-year period, and then you're good. He never once talks about some scale where your good has to outweigh your bad. Last week in the sermon, we talked about how there's some mystery to grace, that just as we cannot control the wind, we cannot control the movement of God's spirit into people's lives, Jesus said. And we read and studied that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus at the beginning of John 3, and during that conversation, Jesus had one goal. He wanted to change Nicodemus's focus. Because for all of his life, right, Nicodemus's focus had been on himself. He'd been sure to follow the law, he was sure to be religious, he was sure to take pride in his position as a direct descendant of Abraham, and using a system of analogies, Jesus destroys every single thing that Nicodemus has faith in. And he leads him to this point that none of those things that Nicodemus had done had an answer for the sin in his life and in his heart, and he ends the conversation by taking Nicodemus's focus off of himself and putting it instead on Jesus being lifted up on a cross, because the cross is key. The cross is what makes everything possible for us. The cross is central to what God offers us in Jesus Christ. And so today we get to cover the paragraph that John wrote for his readers after recording this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And it's like John knew, right? He knew that some of his readers might be thrown off by the talk of the analogies in that conversation. This talk of new birth and and wind and snakes and son of man being lifted up. Because all his readers aren't Nicodemus. All his readers aren't Pharisees. All his readers aren't people of the Sanhedrin. And so John does all of us a huge favor and explains in a crystal clear way what Jesus was telling Nicodemus when what he was leading him to. And in these verses that we're covering today, the first is inarguably the most famous verse in the Bible. Right, we've seen this on signs at sporting events for years. This has been on countless mugs and posters and videos and t-shirts. It has to be among the most quoted and memorized verses of all time. But my fear is that with all that popularity and all that familiarity of the verse, it begins to lose its power. Because this is human nature. Right, we see something enough times, it begins to lose its sparkle. And so let's just all commit. We're going to fight against that today. I want us all to look at John 3.16 today as if we were looking at it for the very first time. And by the way, if you're, if you're a guest here and this is the first time you've read or studied this verse, perfect. You're ahead of us already. Okay. Because I want us all to approach it that way. And I want us to see it clearly because John 3.16 the following verses contain not just the gospel, but some really powerful truths that put to rest a lot of misconceptions about God. I still remember the day that this hit home for me. Okay? I was in a church in Berlin, Germany, of all places. I was there with a group of people from this church, and we were visiting uh, and serving our missionaries there, Fritz and Lynette Good, and the church that they helped plan over there. And I was preaching on this particular day. And one of my many limitations as a human is that the busier I am, the slower I am to feel. Right? So when I'm facing a big day, it takes so much to keep my ADD poster child brain on what I'm doing that I feel little, right? And one of the things that I've actually been talking to God about and praying about is asking him to help me feel more on Sundays when I'm with all of you. Because for my entire life, to feel something, I have to stop and slow down. I have to take it in entirely or else I'll miss the emotion of, of the day or that moment. And I was, I was on that day in Berlin. And so the train ride over, the walk over, all I was doing was going over my notes. When I got there, making sure that I we went over the service order with the pastor and the, and the musicians, getting my mic on, I was memorizing when I'm going up, I'm going over again and again in my head, what my intro is going to be, and it never hit me where I was. And where I was was in the heart of Berlin, Germany, one of the most godless cities in the world, a place where millions of people live, and you could count the faithful churches of Jesus on one hand. And I got to be in one of them. And not only that, Berlin has become an international city where more than 30% of the city's population is people who are not from Germany. So in this church, in that city, were people from all over the world. People who in their nation and their language, Jesus met them and redeemed them and saved them. It was the closest thing to heaven I'll ever experience here as people from every inhabited continent were in that room. And I was missing it until right before I was to speak. And all it said in the service order was scripture reading. And so the first person came up and read John 3.16 in English. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That didn't stop me in my tracks. I'd heard that before. But what happened next did, what happened next was a train of people from different parts of the world. And what each did was step to the mic and read John 3.16 in their native languages. In Russian, in Spanish, in French, in Italian, in German, in multiple African dialects. By the time it was done, I think 14 different languages were represented. So I sat there, right, with my, with my eyes closed, hearing these different languages that I normally have absolutely no clue what they were saying. But I knew what they were saying, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I thought about being born in this little nowhere town in Indiana called Bell Union about this vast array of places where the people in this church had their stories begin. Africa, Europe, Asia, South America, Caribbean, and more. And how on this day we were all in one room. In one room in Germany. We all pro- could proclaim eternal life. Not because of anything that any of us had done. But all because of Jesus Christ. All because of the truth of John 3.16. All because of the gospel. And I was moved. I felt that. Because when you hear us say the word gospel, that simply means good news. So when we say gospel around it, we just mean the good news of Jesus. And that's what John 3, 16 to 21 is all about. And I want us to take note of how John 3, 16 starts. It's just two simple words. Verse 16 starts with these words, for God. And I point that out because I want us to be crystal clear on this. When we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the good news, the story is primarily about God. This is why religion is so powerful or powerless, right? Because religion is human pursuit of God. The problem is that, that God is unreachable. We cannot earn our way to him. We cannot buy his favor. We can't be good enough to earn his approval. And so our only hope as humans was for God to do something, not us. And that's exactly what we're told here. For God. This is about God acting. This is about God on the move. This is about God doing something. And what, if his, what is his motivation for this action? For God so loved world. You see, God is a lot of indescribable things. There are aspects of his power and his holiness that we won't ever grasp because he's God. There are things that he has done and will do that we won't understand because he's God and we're not. But we're told here that we can know why God does everything he does. His motivation is love. The one great certainty of the Bible is that God is the God of love. In fact, in the book of 1 John, right, we're told that he is love that God is the definition he's the embodiment he's the reality of love so to love someone else selflessly is to be like God and this motivation is key because love is never forceful or domineering love looks for one thing back and that's love guys those of you who have been married you need to think back those of you who are younger just think about now when you really fall for that girl I mean, when your head over here is crazy for, her, when you really love her, do you want her to agree to be your maid and housekeeper for the rest of your life but never show you affection? Or is the only thing that you want more than anything this world can offer is just for her to love you back? You see, it's just six words, right? And we've already seen the fallacy of religion. We have a major problem that is our sin. And our sin keeps us from God. That, that we can all feel that distance. That's why since the beginning of time, people have formed countless religions or gotten so disenfranchised, they decide that God must not exist. No one has ever joyfully became an atheist. And the idea of every religion is this idea that we will bridge the gap by somehow serving God. By checking things off a list. By doing enough good. By following certain ceremonies and attending certain services. But this verse reads, For God so loved the world... See, we didn't make the move towards God. He makes the move toward us, and his motivation is love. And so what he's looking for is our hearts. He wants to connect with us in a deep and intimate relationship. He's not looking for begrudging servants who are only in it for their own gain. He's looking for people who love him. And he's earned that love. He deserves it. Because out of his love for us, he gave his one and only son. Again, look at that language as if you've never read it before. He gave God gave us his son. The Greek word there implies that there is a loss to the giver. This is not a gift out of abundance. Think about it. God could have given us almost anything and it would have cost him nothing because everything is his. But he gave us the one thing that cost him. The only thing in all creation that would be sacrificial for him to give, God gave him to us. His one and only son, that Greek word means unique without equal, radically distinctive. This was no ordinary gift. This was Jesus. This was God's son in whom he was well pleased. And this was a costly, costly gift. But God gave to us such a great gift because he loved the world. He loves all people who are created in his image. He loves all of them with a the love that is unmatched by anything else this world can offer. He loves him so much that in order to close the gap between us and him, he gave the hardest thing it was for him to give his only son. And he gave him to us in order to inflict all the pain and all the punishment onto him that should be reserved for us. He gave us Jesus to send him to a cross. And on that cross, God would unload all of his wrath and all of his anger and all of his judgment onto Jesus Christ. We cannot even begin to fathom and understand the suffering that Jesus endured for us on that day. We cannot even begin to understand the pain it caused God the Father to unload all of that on his son for us. And his motivation was love. And his purpose was reconciliation, because the verse continues, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever, listen to that word, man, that that has no limitations. Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross to pay for the price of the sins of whoever believes. This price doesn't have a limit, right? His death is sufficient, sufficient to pay the price for the sins of the entire world. It's sufficient to pay the price for the sins of endless worlds. So whoever believes, whoever trusts, whoever believes that Jesus died for them and puts their faith in him, puts their confidence in him, then they will never perish but have eternal life. Jesus' death will cover and forgive their sins. And even when they die, they will not perish. Instead, they'll be granted eternal life with God. And God will get the reward of his cost. He gets his people back. He gave up his son in order to make it possible for us to have unbroken fellowship and an intimate relationship with him. And for those who believe in Jesus, we have that and we have that forever. Now, John continues in verse 17. John chapter 3, verse 17, read along. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Notice again, for God. The gospel story is about God, right? And then John addresses one of the major uh, misconceptions about God in this verse and the next. He tells us, God did not send Jesus in this world in order to condemn it. Now, this was a rescue mission. Because God does not delight in any who remain far from him. He does not delight in any, in, in their destruction or in their condemnation. In fact, we're told this throughout the Bible. Uh, we got some verses for you. I think we might be able to put them on the screen, but if not, I'll read them to you. Ezekiel chapter 18, 23 tells us this. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Later in verse 32, he says, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord, repent and live. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 says this, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself up as a ransom for all people. Lastly, 2 Peter 3 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, again and again and again and again throughout the Bible, we're told that God is love, that God came for you, that God died for you, that all of God's actions towards you are designed to save you and forgive you and grant you eternal life and for your ultimate good. God does not delight in your destruction. God does not enjoy your demise. God does not send anyone to hell by an act of divine joy. So what is the controversy? Why why does hell even exist then? Why, if Jesus' death can just pay for everything, doesn't everyone just go to heaven? Why is this good news so often taken as bad? Well, John answers that, and he says it's not the fault of the giver. That it's actually not on God, it's on us. Because human beings are so messed up. Look what he says in verse 18. This verse is much less popular than John 3.16, by the way. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned... But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Whoever believes is not condemned. Again, the only limitation is belief. Whoever believes, the invitation is far and wide. Belief in Jesus frees us from any condemnation. Paul picks up on this in Romans 8.1. He says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All the pain, all the punishment, all the wrath that God had for sin was poured out on Jesus. So when you put your faith in him, he takes on all of that for you. Listen, you deserve death. You deserve hell. You deserve to pay for your sins, and so do I. Yet for those who believe in Jesus, Jesus takes on all of that for us. It's all been enveloped in the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But we are told here, and man, sometimes in the Bible that word can bring great joy, but in this verse it doesn't. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever doesn't believe, and before we even finish that sentence, I want to see how inclusive that is. Whoever doesn't believe means that any means anyone who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Which means you can believe in anything at all other than him. And this verse applies to you. It can be a religion. You can believe in yourself or in your goodness. You can believe in some sort of moral code that you've set up for your life. You can believe in some progressive secular dogma. You can believe that a giant frog told you where a pot of endless gold was somewhere in the woods in West Terre Haute. It doesn't matter, right? Jesus makes this distinction himself in Matthew 7. He talks about wise, the wise person and the foolish person. The wise person, Jesus says, puts their faith in me. The wise person follows me. The wise person believes my teaching. The wise person throws everything in with me. The foolish person, Jesus says in Matthew 7, believes in anything else at all because there's absolutely no point in ranking them because they all end the same, all of their beliefs are insufficient, all of their beliefs have their trust in the wrong place, all of their beliefs worship and rely on something or someone lesser than what Jesus, and who Jesus is and what he did. And here's why, because whoever does not believe stands condemned already. You see, God doesn't condemn anyone He doesn't condemn anyone and send them to hell. Jesus doesn't condemn anyone and send them to hell. God doesn't actively look to ruin you because he loves you. But here's the truth. Even if he wanted to, he wouldn't have to actively look to ruin you because you're already doing that yourself. You stand condemned already. The reason that God doesn't have to condemn anyone is because they condemn themselves. You do it. He doesn't. In fact, he sent Jesus to save you from it. You see, one of the major hurdles that exists, one of the major hurdles that we have in experience and what God has for us is that we have way too high a view of humanity. We're simply far too impressed with ourselves and with our kind. Well, the Bible doesn't make this mistake. Right? The Bible is wildly, aggressively pessimistic when it comes to human nature. It tells us clearly that, that sin has depraved our minds. We're getting ready to read a couple of verses here in John that, that tells us that because of this, we make really foolish decisions like loving darkness and evil instead of light. It correctly points out that no one's been worse to you than you have. And the Bible has little good to say about humanity apart from Christ. But the Bible is also wildly optimistic about human beings when they put their faith in Jesus Because now they're new creations Now they have the resources of heaven Now God's spirit lives in them And there is no condemnation for them But the starting point You see the starting point for all of us When it comes to God Is that when we sin We're in open rebellion against God Our sins aren't things to be ignored They aren't things to be swept under the rug They aren't things to be justified Or dismissed as not as bad as someone else's Our sins are an affront They are an offense. They are offensive to a holy perfect God And it's impossible for him to abide them In his righteousness, in his holiness, in his perfection, he must punish them. So as sinners, which we all are, we stand condemned. We've already lost. We have no chance in ourselves. But God in his love for us sent Jesus to take on that punishment in our place so that if we believe in him, we can be spared that. But if we do not, John tells us, then we stay under the curse and condemnation that we put ourselves under. Which makes you ask, why would anyone ever do that? Why make such an obviously terrible choice? Well, John answers that for us in verse 19. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. John describes Jesus as light coming into the world. Okay, So think about what light does. Light reveals. Okay, This works because Jesus came to reveal our need for a Savior. He came to reveal to us our need to be reconciled to God. He came to show us that we need forgiven. Light also gives life. If there is no light, there is no life. Life's impossible, and Jesus came to give us life. The great irony is that Jesus died so that we may live. By dying for us, he was purchasing endless eternal life for us. Light came into the world, John says, and we were like, no thanks. Light came into the world, and we took a pass. Light came into the world, and that light was motivated by God's love for us, and we decided that we loved something more. John says, people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Let's, let's help to understand this. Let's use this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus right before this. Now, even if you weren't here last week, I'll catch you up. Okay? Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin. This is the council of Jewish rulers. And he opens the conversation he has with Jesus in verse 2 of chapter 3 by admitting they know. He says, it comes right out, we know you're from God. Just a few verses later, Jesus tells Nicodemus, guess what? The Sanhedrin won't ever accept who I am. And sure enough, spoiler alert, by the time we get to John 18 and 19 and 20, we'll not only see the Sanhedrin plotting his death, but arresting Jesus, putting him through a mock trial, demanding to Pilate that he be executed on a cross. Why? When they knew he was from God. Well, the Sanhedrin enjoyed a lot of power before Jesus came they held all the keys to the civil and religious sway over their people and the jew and jesus being the messiah threatened that they watched as people were going to him instead of them jesus in revealing how powerless religion is threatened their power and their hold over people he threatened to end it forever And so even though Jesus came to offer them this amazing gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven, what they decided is they they decided they wanted to have influence over a small section of the Roman Empire for their limited life here instead. It's a pathetic, terrible choice. But they made it because they love something more than Jesus. They loved their own power. They loved their influence. They loved their standing in their community. And so they rejected the loving, awesome gift of God for something they believed would be better for them. And it was a terrible choice. And we do this all the time. And even followers of Christ, you guys aren't immune to this, right? We all try to slip back in the darkness we cling to sins and we cling to these harmful patterns in our lives. We, we, there are portions of our life and our heart that we try and keep hidden into ourselves because we don't believe that what God is offering for us is better than those things. And we all do this. We're all collectively foolish in this way. It's idiocy to think that anything this world offers is better than what God offers us. But we love our sin. We love this idea that we are somehow in control over our lives. We love the false notion that we call the shots. And so we love darkness, John says. And we choose to stay in the darkness rather than to come into the light and let Jesus have his way. This is not only a foolish choice, but a harmful one. As it leads us to remain in condemnation. We love lesser things than God. So we don't trust him with our lives. We don't trust him with our careers. We don't trust him with our marriages. We don't trust him with our kids. We, don't, we definitely don't trust him with our eternity. Because our minds are so depraved and screwed up that we think we can be a better God than he can. We believe that, that whatever it is we're holding on to, whatever it is we're clinging to, that's going to bring us more joy than God can. And, he, and we can't be more wrong. Couldn't be more wrong. Because verse 21 paints a picture of what's possible John three twenty one says this, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Those who come into the light, those who trust in Jesus, they have no fear. It's one of the things we were singing about right before we got up here, because there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ, so step into the light. Listen, I take absolutely no pride in this. But it's without fear this morning that I tell you openly I'm a sinner. Man, I'm a mess. I'm not perfect, and I'm not even close to it. The very best thing you could say about me is that I'm a work in progress, but I face zero condemnation because of what Jesus did for me. So I feel no pressure to hide from you the fact that I'm a sinner. I feel no need to keep that truth a secret or cling to some ridiculous idea that I'm anything important at all. But instead, in the light of his grace, I'm free. I'm free to love him. I'm free to worship him. I'm free to exalt him. I'm free to to take off from the mask. I'm free to tell you about everything that he can do for you. Because followers of Christ, they come into the light, not to show off how awesome they are, but to show off how awesome he is. We have nothing to hide because Jesus has covered it all. We have nothing to fear because Jesus has faced it all. We have nothing lesser to cling to because Jesus is all so really it all comes down to this question. Do you really believe that he's the best thing for you? Do you honestly believe that? Because we must let go of these misconceptions about God and understand what he offers us. God made the move towards us. God came for us out of his unending love for us. He gave us Jesus Christ, and Jesus died in our place on the cross, and he didn't do any of this to have a reason to condemn us if we don't believe. He did all of this to save us from certain condemnation that was already in place. In 1981, there was this really unique manhunt in California. A thief stole the car, as thieves do. Right? And This greatly concerned the car's owner, but not for the reason you might think, On the front dash of the car, there was a box of crackers, and unbeknownst to the guy who stole the car, these crackers were laced with poison. The plan was this, the car's owner was going to set these poisonous crackers in his garage to try and take care of a rat infestation. Now the police are looking frantically for the car thief before he decides he's hungry enough to eat a cracker, right? So they put out bulletins on the radio. They put out bulletins in TV stations. They unload their entire police force because they're looking, they're looking for this man. Everyone is looking for him, but they're not looking to arrest him. They're trying to save his life. And the most tragic thing about the misconceptions we have about God is that often people hide from God. They hide from God because they think he's going to punish them. They hide from God because they think He's coming to condemn them. They hide from God because they think He's going to take something from them they don't want to give up. They hide from God because they simply don't trust Him. And all along, He is in pursuit of them because He loves them and wants to save them. Listen, I haven't spoken much today to seasoned followers of Christ, and I'm more than okay with that. Because it's good for your soul. It's good for your soul, even if you belong to christ already to hear again and again and again and again what god has done for you in jesus christ but i want to close our time this morning by making a really overt and honest plea to those condemned already i want to make a plea to those who do not yet believe in jesus come into the light Come into the arms of the God who's chasing you, the God who came for you. For God so loved you, he sent his one and only son, so that when you believe, you will not perish but have eternal life. This place exists to tell you about that. Everything you see, all of us, all this, it's here so that you would know that Jesus died for you. So that you would know and believe that he is your only way to heaven. So what do you do? It's simple. 98 different times in the book of John alone, the book we're in, we're told that we are to believe in Jesus for eternal life. The gospel, this good news, it's all about what God did. He came, he pursued, he lived the perfect life, he died in your place, he rose again. Now you simply must just believe. If you've you've never trusted Him, if you've never trusted in Jesus' death for your sins, we call on you today right where you're sitting to believe in Him. Just believe. Would you stop trusting in yourself and just rely fully on Jesus and what He's done for you? And if so, John tells you, the Bible tells you, you will pass from condemnation to eternal life. Because whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads, and we're going to lead and do a time of prayer. If you're one of those here this morning, never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a simple prayer to follow along if you want to do that today. And you need to know this prayer doesn't save you at all. Jesus Christ is the one who saves you. And so if you are ready to surrender your life to him, then, then say these words in your heart along with me. Father, I thank you for giving me your son, Jesus. God, I thank you that he died in my place on the cross. And Lord, today I believe. I believe that he can save me from my sins. I believe that he is who he said he is. And I trust in him fully to give me eternal life. Father, we pray for any in this room who said that prayer. We pray that... That, that when they leave this place, Lord, they would not do so without sharing that good news with us. God, I pray for those around this room that are still on the fence. They, they, they're thinking about it. They're on the edge. That they're wondering if they should have prayed that. God, it's never too late to turn to you. So, Lord, around this room, quicken us, God. Move your spirit in this place. Draw people to you that they may believe and find life in Jesus. God, for those of us who've done that, let us leave this place with hearts full of gratitude for what you've done on our behalf. Seeing your son on the cross in our place should should make us be people who are grateful, not victims. People who are joyous, not whining. People who are gracious, not judgmental. Because you died in our place. And so God, I pray that we would leave this place and share this amazing, wonderful, good news with those in our lives who stand condemned already. And Lord, we ask all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. let stand and sing.